So this morning, we're in Acts 21, and this is the third of a series of 10 on going and doing the making of a testimony. I'm really excited about this. I've been thinking about this for a long time. And so this is our third in the making of a testimony. Our testimony is so powerful, it cannot be robbed. What's happened in our lives personally, no one can take that away. In fact, the Bible says that we overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb, what Jesus did, and the word of our testimony, what Jesus did in us. And so we can't be, that can't be taken away. So the making of a testimony. So we began this series with a personal assessment. I asked three questions. Uh, am I fervent? Am I f- and these are questions I think every day we start out with. Three questions. Am I fervently loving Jesus today? Secondly, am I full of the Holy Spirit Today, am I walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit today? And the third question, am I following Jesus, fighting the good fight of faith? So the making of a testimony is a daily work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. The second, in Acts chapter 20 last week, be real. Be the real deal with God and be the real deal with people. When you're the real deal with God, you will be the real deal with people. And if you're really the real deal with people, God will be able to meet you and you'll become the real deal with him. So be real and be ready. Why do we be What are we to be ready for? There's a race that will soon be over. And each of us as believers have been given a race to run. So there's a race that will soon be over. And then there's a ministry like no other. We've all been given a unique ministry by the Lord, gifted by him, empowered by him that God's called us to do. So Paul knew that. I want to run my race with joy and the ministry that God's given me to to declare the grace of of the, go- the gospel, the grace of God. That's Paul said, this is why I'm running. This is why I'm doing it. This morning, I want to look at dare to do the will of God. Dare to do the will of God in chapter, Acts chapter 21. So number one in this whole thought process, there's three things I want to share. The first one is, other options will be there for you. Dare to say no. When we want to go to do the will of God, there's going to be a lot of other options. Can I hear an amen? A lot of other ways that we could go. But dare to say no to that and to say yes to God. Look at verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Verse 2. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia. This is the end of the, of the third missionary journey, which ends actually in this chapter, about halfway through verse 17. So he's, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. Finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre. From there, the ship was, for there, the ship was to unload her cargo. So again, the third missionary journey comes to an end. Paul has been traveling with his companions, get this, six years. So this has not been a short little vacation. For six years, he's been on this third missionary journey. Now, Paul had a one-track mind to get to Jerusalem. A one-track mind is a good thing sometimes, and Paul had this one-track mind to get to Jerusalem. So let's go through this third missionary journey on the map. And as I do, I just want to, I'm going to interject a couple of the scriptures where Paul says, my one-track, the one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get to Jerusalem. Now at the end of the second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18 and verse 20, Paul was asked to stay longer with them, but he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you. And then he said, God willing. That's always a good thing to add to all of our plans. God willing. 
So Paul said, I'm going to get to Jerusalem. That's at the end of the second missionary journey. He went there, but we aren't told anything about what happened. Now, number one, Paul then, in this third missionary journey, leaves Antioch, and he visits the, the church in Galatia and Phrygia, this area here. That's number one. Two, Paul goes to Ephesus. So he's heading to Ephesus. Three, at Ephesus, he was there for about three years of this six-year journey. From there, he writes 1 Corinthians as he is in Ephesus. He hears about them and writes to them. You remember there was a riot that took place, so he gets out of Ephesus and, and then goes into Macedonia, this area here, number four. In Acts 19, 21, at this time, Paul says, purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also go to Rome. So his one-track mind at this point, get to Jerusalem, and then he also wants to go to Rome. Number five, Paul goes to Greece, perhaps, and this is what this dotted line is, perhaps via Illyricum or Nicopolis, perhaps directly, they're not sure, but he heads to Greece, number six. While at Corinth, Paul writes both Galatians and Romans. So on this journey, he writes uh, from Corinth, um, the books of Galatia, the Galatians and to the Romans. After three months in Greece, number seven, Paul sets out for Jerusalem via Macedonia, winds up in Troas. Number eight, Eutychus, you remember this, he restored the life of this man who fell out of the window from an all-night Bible study. That's in, in Acts chapter 20. Now, at this time, in Acts 20, 16 now, Paul said, had decided to set to sail past Ephesus, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So rather than go to Ephesus, he bypasses them. And this is where Paul gives that wonderful, uh, his last words to the Ephesian elders there in Acts chapter 20. He bids farewell to them. But in Acts chapter 20, three of the most fantastic verses as far as Paul's passion and his heart, his one-track mind, he said this, and see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop me. This is what I'm doing. Not knowing the things that will happen to me there. He wasn't sure what was going to happen. He knew it might not be that good, but he said, that doesn't matter to me. I'm going to get there. I want to be there. Verse 21, Acts 20, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city. Interesting saying that chains and tribulations await me. So all along, Paul's hearing about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. But, he said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's sort of the pinnacle of this one-track mind that he had. Now, in number 10, right here, Paul reembarks for Syria, and then number 11, he lands at Tyre, stops at Ptolemy and Caesarea, and finally then, he arrives at Jerusalem. So that's a little map, if it helps you. That's the journey we've just been on. So there is no question that Paul was a driven follower of Jesus Christ. He was a driven man. And pray to God that such would be my conviction as my testimony would be just like that, that I'm driven. There's a good drivenness that I'm driven to follow Jesus Christ. And I hope the same, and I'm sure it is, the prayer that you have. Nelson Eddy put it this way. Give me some men who are start, stout-hearted men who will fight for the right they adore. Start me with 10 who are start, 
stout-hearted men, and I'll soon give you 10,000 more. It's very, very contagious. Paul was a contagious kind of guy. He was this stout-hearted man that had one thing in mind. He was going to follow Jesus, and he was going to do God's will as best as he knew it, no matter what it meant. Dwight L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And then he said, by God's help, I aim to be that man. This is what Vince Lombardi, many of you know the Hall of Fame coach of the Green Bay Packers. He said, quote, I firmly believe that any man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment of all that he holds dear, is that moment when when he has worked his heart out in a good cause and lies exhausted on the, <clears throat> on the field of battle, victorious, unquote. Gave it all. And there he is, exhausted but victorious. That is what we have in front of us as believers. Jesus Christ is the ultimate victor. We follow him, we follow him to victory. And we want to have this same passion, this same drive as Paul had. So the question that this chapter surfaces, did Paul in his driven state, make it harder on himself than the Lord himself would have had it. In other words, did Paul go to Jerusalem on his own will, or did he go by the will of God? Notice verse 4 of chapter 21. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Then Paul, they told Paul, notice, through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. So, an interesting question. Was Paul doing the will of God? Some say yes, and some say no. I say absolutely yes. That's my conviction on this. Three times Paul is warned that we read of in the scriptures once he's told here not to go. Now, the option to not go was there for Paul to decide, as it is for us every time. The option is there. So, Other options will be there for you. Dare to say no to them. That's what Paul did. He believed that God would have him go to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting, in chapter 22, as he's given his testimony, when he was first saved there in Jerusalem, he said, I'm going to go preach to the Jews. And Jesus said, no, you're going to get out of Jerusalem because if you go now, you're a dead man. He said, but Lord... They know my history. They know my testimony. Surely if I tell them what happened to me and tell them about Jesus, they're going to come to Christ. And Jesus said, no, they're not. You need to get out of Jerusalem. So that wasn't the timing yet. But now Jesus himself and Paul is directed. I believe he's going there by the will of God. I, what I think we're seeing here is the human element to the things on the heart of God. Certainly God doesn't glory in all of our tribulations and trials and all that. But he has a purpose in them for his glory and for our good. Humanly speaking, who wants to see someone go and get beat up? And so we have, a, I believe, a human element here warning Paul because they loved him. For Paul, this was not a sudden urge, but a long-building conviction of his heart. I believe Paul pressed on with a determined sanctified stubbornness. And that's a good stubbornness. Sanctified stubbornness. Overriding every motivation in Paul, I believe, not perfectly, I get that, was a faith that was steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that his labor was not in vain in the Lord. That's what he wrote to the Corinthians. Paul's whole faith was 
was saturated, knowing that when he worked and he labored and he went through what he went, it was not in vain in the Lord. If Paul was out of God's will, then what about all his companions? Paul knew what it was to be forbidden by the Holy Spirit. God could have done the same thing here. Now, again, these are all up for discussion. In fact, all the commentators I read, they said, I, we can't be dogmatic on exactly all that's going on in this chapter. My conviction is that Paul was going motivated, and we'll talk more about this in a while. The Lord encouraged Paul in his, in his testimony in Jerusalem, Acts 23. When Jesus originally saved Paul, through Ananias, Jesus spoke to Paul and said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul was ready for that. He was ready to die, as we'll see today. He, it, that wasn't the issue for him. In Acts twenty-two fourteen, again, next week, as he's giving his testimony, Ananias said, the God of our fathers has chosen you, Paul, that you should know his will. And so God told him right from the beginning, you're going to suffer. It's a part of my will for you. So that wasn't an issue for Paul going forward. Paul saw all of this, he wrote, as a furtherance of the gospel. He said to the Philippians, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul's whole life, he knew, was given to Christ. God was going to take and do what he did, and it was going to further God's purposes through his life in doing God's will. Paul's motivations were amazing. He was bringing, first of all, an offering to the Jerusalem church from all the churches he had been through for six years, collecting the offering. So his motivation was to get this money, this offering, to the Jerusalem church to help them out. Secondly, here's an amazing thing that Paul said to the Romans. He said, I wish I could, I could wish myself a curse that is eternally damned from God for Christ, my brethren, to know him. Paul's passion for the Jews was that they'd come to know Christ. What a motivation. He was ready to lay his life down, not even be saved himself. Now, now that can't happen, but as he's writing in Romans verse, chapter 9, he begins to say, I could wish myself were accursed, that my brethren in the flesh, the Jews, could come to know Jesus. He was so saturated with the love for Christ and his, and his people. And he didn't care about his own life. He said, I don't count my life dear to myself that I may... may run my race, and finish my ministry. Now, let me pause here a moment to say this. I hope this goes without saying, but I know my own need to be continually exhorted. There are things we know are not or never the will of God. One word, sin is never the will of God. Even if God says it once, that should persuade us once and forever. This is not from God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now, that doesn't stop there. He says that we may do all the words of this law. God's revealed them to us, and then we don't get to decide what apply to us. He said it, and that means it applies. And there are things God has said are evil and wrong, and we're not to be doing them. He's revealed them to us so that we may do them. That is his word. God's revealed them to us to warn us and to keep us in all of our ways. Sin 
is destructive. Sin is insidious. Sin silently destroys and corrupts our lives. So God said, keep away from it. Don't do it. Psalm 119, the psalmist wrote verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. It's interesting. My whole heart I've sought you. Let me not wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God of love. Lord, take my heart and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. We know the tendency of the flesh and the world to tempt us. And the devil there, the great tempter, to wander. Even though we're seeking with all of our hearts, we know those things. So God gave us his word that we come back to all the time as that light. He gave us that, his word to take heed according to what he said. Therefore, he said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. He said, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Let me know your word because they're there to warn me and to keep me in all my ways. Now, some would say that we're brainwashed. I have no argument with that. I needed my brainwash, can you hear an amen? And I need it washed every day, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Wash it, Lord. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, which he did on this journey, said this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. Here's a list, one of Paul's ugly lists. Neither fornicators, that's sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty serious stuff. And such were some of you. But you were what? Washed. Praise the Lord. Washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, how? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Praise be to God for what he's done. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. That's what God did. God's word is a supreme software. The most profound program ever written. It's able to search out, attack, and destroy every virus of sin and self and replace it with a whole new operating system that transforms the sinner's heart. Praise the Lord. That's what God's word is. Sanctified means set apart for the will of God in the purpose he has for our lives. Set apart as one forgiven of all sin. Set apart as one from living in sin or for sin. Set apart, filled with the Holy Spirit, and finding an increasing victory over sin. That's what we have as believers. So I hope it goes without saying, but yet we need a continual reminder. We need the Word of God. We must understand there are things that our flesh will deceive us about, that the devil will tempt us in, and that the world will be happy to see us do. That's what happens. So we want to say, Lord, Keep me in all my ways. Let me know your statutes. Let me know your, it's a light lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me where I am and shows me where I need to be going. That's the word of God. We've talked about this all the time, but I'm gonna, I love talking about it. So secondly, in this whole idea of daring to, to do the will of God, others' opinions will challenge you. Dare to disagree. There are gonna be people that have a lot of opinions about what you should be doing with your life. Dare to disagree. 
Let's go on. Again, verse 4. Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. I love it. Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer. You see, prayer is where we agree with God. Prayer is where we find out what his opinion is, and his opinion is ultimate, the only one that matters. Can you hear an amen? In prayer, we need to be in prayer also, because that's where we find out what God thinks. Prayer is never to get my will done. Prayer is always to get God's will done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I want to know what your will is. I want to come to you. I want to hear from you. I need to know what would you have me to do, Lord. Verse 6, when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship. They returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. So seven days, then one day. And with each few days stopover, you have to know that Paul's trip to Jerusalem was a part, if not a major part, of the conversations he's having there. All the way along, they're telling him, this is going to happen now. He's on these other cities. He stays seven days, one day. I believe at least a part, if not a major part, of the conversations where Paul telling him, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen there. They've been telling him that, but I'm going there because what I want to do is I want to tell them about Jesus. And so a major part of the conversation, so all the way along, Paul's talking. You have to know there were people with varying opinions about this thing, even as we've read, some of them. Verse 8, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So Philip was one of the seven deacons chosen to wait on tables, Acts chapter 6. But Philip, hold on, you're an evangelist. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be out evangelizing. And I believe Philip would say, well, I disagree with that. God's called me to wait on tables here. Philip was God's instrument for a great revival in Samaria. And what happens? God calls Philip to leave this wonderful thing that's happening there and go down to this, meet this, go down to the, he doesn't even tell him why. He just says, I want you to go into the desert to Gaza. Now, Philip, hold on a second. Look what God's doing in your life. Look, how, look at this amazing revival that's happening here. You're a part of that. You've been a key part of it. And you're going to go to Gaza and you don't even know why? You shouldn't do that. You should stay here. And I think Philip would say, no, I disagree. God's called me to go down to Gaza. And there he met the Ethiopian eunuch. And from there he disappeared. <laughs> Not really, but that's kind of what happened. Now we find him 20 years later in Caesarea. He's sort of like, Philip, what's been happening? You're not out traveling and evangelizing. You're not using your gifts, Philip. What's going on? And he'd say, well, I disagree. I'm in Caesarea, been here 20 years. And notice what it says there. The man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. You see, Philip evangelized his family. He raised four godly daughters it moves my heart. You see, the testimony of a family and these daughters that he raised is a testimony far exceeding whatever else he might have been doing. He raised his family and no doubt many others. Oh, how blessed are the men who married his daughters. Oh, how blessed are the children that she bore for him and for them. 
You see, Philip did something so powerful, and the same is true for each one of us who have families. Our families are our first ministry before the Lord. Evangelize them. Live for them. See them growing up. And I understand they all have these little things called wills. <laughs> and we might train them up in the way they should go, but when they are, they depart from it. Now, that, that Proverbs scripture is not a promise. It's a principle. Train them up the way they should go, and when he's old, they will not depart from it. There's a principle involved in stacking the deck for them to walk with Christ the whole life. And that's what we as parents are called to do. Grandparents, the same thing. To evangelize our families and to give them a godly heritage. Praise the Lord, I'm getting excited. Verse 10, and as we stayed many days now, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When, we had, when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt. Can I have your belt, please? Now, that's kind of a weird thing. Oh, well, here's my belt. What do you want my belt for? <laughs> Bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't sound like a very nice prophecy you'd like to get. But here's the deal. Agabus was a proven prophet. In Acts chapter 11, then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. This man was gifted as a prophet. And so as he's speaking now, he's a proven prophet. 20 years or so later, he, and he's saying, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul. It didn't dissuade Paul at all. He said, I've been hearing that, and you're just confirming that. Now, Agabus said nothing about of not going, but he's warning him. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. He's telling them. So evidently, Paul received this as information for what was coming, but not as a prohibition to going. So he, here's what, okay, that, and, but Paul, again, he, he, it, it didn't matter to him. I'm sure he said, well, I'm looking forward to getting pummeled. No, but he knew that what he was doing was for the cause of Christ. So he didn't respond to it, but his friends did. Notice in verse 12. Now when we, that includes Luke and his companions, his traveling companions. Now when we heard these things, again, the love they had for Paul. Both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. So if it was Luke, he probably wouldn't have gone. If it was Trophimus, he probably wouldn't have gone. But Paul's saying, notice what he says. Paul answered, what do you mean me by weeping and breaking my heart? He said, his heart's broken. For I am ready not only to be bound, but to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And he almost did. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, notice, we ceased, comma, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Not we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Oh, well, okay, forget the will of the Lord now. Just let Paul do it. No, we ceased, comma, saying, the will of the Lord be done. So they realized, okay, Paul has decided in his heart. It's in him. He believes this is the Lord. So we're going we're gonna to say, okay, then Paul... We'll be praying for you. Some of, some of us will still be with you. See, Paul was not budging. He was going ahead in what he believed was the Lord's will. And now he had also others. Okay, this is what's going to happen. Now, Paul was not with a foolish, reckless abandon just doing this. He was with his will abandoned to the will of God. And we need our will continually surrendered once again to the will of God for us. I love what Abraham Lincoln said. He said this, quote, I hope to stand firm enough to not go backward and yet not go forward fast enough to wreck the country's 
cause. In other words, Paul wanted to be in step with Christ. He wanted to be doing what God's calling to do. He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit at times. So Paul's seeking to stay in step with God's will for him. I love what he wrote to the Ephesians. He said, Ephesians 5.15, So then, see then, that you walk circumspectly. Now the picture there is getting the big picture. So I think of it when I was learning how to drive. You look in the mirror over mirror, the side mirrors. You get the big picture before you make a turn or go to the other lane. That's the picture. Walk circumspectly. Look around. See everything that's going on and put the pieces together. Understand where you're at, what's going on around you. Walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. In other words, do the best you can to understand your circumstances. Look around and then keep traveling because the days are evil. And then he said this, therefore, do not be unwise, but what? Understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul is writing the Ephesians, the same thing that he was applying to his own life. I want to understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he said this, and don't be drunk with wine, what's controlling you, but be being filled, as we've talked about, with the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, know what's going on. Get the picture around you. Keep traveling. Keep going. Understand what the will of the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit and trust the Lord for what's going to happen. And Paul was operating with those things in mind. He wasn't trying to get ahead of the Lord or behind. He was trying to stay in step with what Christ had for him. The third thought in this in this final one is opposition will oppose you, dare to plan for it. Do you plan for opposition? <laughs> We're going to avoid opposition, but Paul planned for it, as did the church in Jerusalem. Now, I want to read you a, a longer quote from Theodore Roosevelt, who was the 26th president of the United States. It's a fantastic quote. He said this, quote, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, because there is not effort without error and shortcomings, but who does actually strive to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat, unquote. Fantastic quote. Are we in the arena? Are we dust and sweat? Are we in the, the, the arena? Now look at verse 15 now. And after those days, we packed and went to Jerusalem. So they're packing up on their way. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So as they pack up to head to Jerusalem, they're met by this man, Manson of Cyprus. Probably one who came to Christ at Pentecost because it says they're one of the early disciples. Now, his name suggests he was a Hellenist Jew. In other words, he was a Greek-speaking and cultured Jew. Therefore, he would have been more comfortable with Paul's traveling companions. Some of them were Gentiles, so it's very possible that's what's going on. And he lodges them. That's so cool. They were waiting for him to come, and they had a place all ready for him, Paul and his companions. Verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, again, this is Luke and all his companions. The brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with, with us to James, and all the elders were present. 
When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So the church in Jerusalem was glad they finally arrived six years later. There were some exciting times. Paul's giving them all the details. And listen, we, can, we should always be able to plan on the church being our place of refuge and safety and blessing and welcoming. So now we get to this very interesting situation that, we, that I was talking about here in this chapter. Notice verse 20. When they heard it, Paul's telling them, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, you see, brother, so there's this tremendous unity and receptivity among the leaders. Brother Paul, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they're all zealous for the Lord. So thousands of Jews in Jerusalem were coming to know Christ. What a fantastic thing. They've been gone six years. Lots of people are coming to Jesus. These Jewish believers get, had an even greater zeal for the law, for God's word, as would be expected, as the same for us. We get saved, we love the word. So these believers also had their traditions and customs that they're still thinking are really important that were taught to them by Moses. They're Jewish. So coming to Christ sort of amplified some of these things as they begin seeing Christ in all the things they were doing. Notice verse 21. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the custom. So these informants are bad informers. Possible Judaizers, probably. The rumors are flying about what Paul had been teaching the Jews while ministering to the Gentiles, and they were distorting what he was teaching or outright lying about what he was saying. So there was this distorted conveyance of Paul's messages. What then? Verse 22. The assembly must certainly meet. We're going to come together, for they will want to hear, they, they, they've heard you've come. So these people are excited to hear Paul speak and to be there with him. James and the elders, though, knowing what was being said, these leaders, they knew this would be something they would have to deal with once Paul did arrive at Jerusalem. So they had a plan. You see, Paul's conversion was very polarizing. As a Jewish man coming to Christ who used to persecute them, these leaders knew that. They knew what was being said. So they're not burying their, hand, their heads in the sands of naivety. They're saying, we've got to understand when Paul gets here, we're going to have some issues to deal with. So these leaders themselves probably had their own questions for Paul the Apostle. Do you understand there's a tension going on here with Paul coming? Therefore, do what we tell you. So they're saying, this is what you need to do. We thought about it. Here's what we feel like you need to do, Paul. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, not true, but that you yourself also walk accordingly, walk orderly and keep the law. Paul, you still esteem God's truth. So this is what we want you to do. So as they're, as they're praying and thinking and preparing, this idea that Paul was to come and, and, it, and demonstrate his respect for the law and the Jews and their convictions, by doing something any honest Jew would have to acknowledge as a sincere gesture of, listen, respect and love. So they came up with this plan, this idea. Verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, 
we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So James and the elders are quick to point out, we're not reneging on what happened in Acts chapter 15 in that landmark conference where we decide this is how everyone is saved. We're not reneging on that. We understand that we're keeping them. Now, some might conclude that they are adding to that. That's up for conjecture. That's up for, you can, you can think that through for yourself, that, that they are saying, well, this is still important. Whether or not it's up for discussion, one thing is clear. These Jewish believers felt very strongly that Paul needed to do these things to then sort of appease in one sense and put to rest some of these lies. They're not going to forsake their heritage. They're not going to forsake their upbringing. They're not going to forsake the roots. They're Jews, not Gentiles. And we're going to hold to those things. So Paul's arrival in Jerusalem is forcing upon the church a problem and a very difficult problem at that. Adding to the problem was the fact that Paul had collected an offering from, listen, the Gentile churches. So in so doing, the Gentiles were showing their love and care for the Jewish believers. So were they to receive the gift and then spurn the givers? You see, they couldn't just take the money and run. There's something more attached. There's this unity issue, this understanding of who are Christians and how we're to interact. So there's this continuing tension. There's this thing I heard one time, is it a problem to solve or a tension to manage? We ask our staff that. When problems come up, is this a problem to solve or a tension to manage? I believe this is both. There's a tension to manage so that we can solve the problem. And it's going to take time. It's been a long time now. And yet still, Paul even had to write about it to the churches. This whole thing, particularly to the Galatians. So on the one hand, there's the unity of Jewish and Gentile believers. On the other hand, there's this persuasion by some to keep the differentiation between Jew and Gentile. So the Jerusalem council addressed this issue, but they didn't solve it. Now they're working it out in the church over years and years. So one meeting's not going to solve the problem. In fact, it would be this ongoing tension to manage. So I wrote here, I hope, just a little I've shared, that you and I can appreciate the difficulty of this multifaceted situation they were faced with. James, the elders, the church, a returning entourage with Paul the Apostle and his traveling companions. I wrote this. They were in the proverbial pickle. Now you can decide if the pickle was kosher or not, but they have this pickle coming up, okay? And that's what's going on here. Let me continue. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men. The next day, having been purified with them, Paul, entering the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So I want to explain this a little bit, just to, I hope will help you understand a little bit what's going on. To their credit, James and the elders did have a plan. But as I see it, not only would no plan be a perfect plan, but any plan would necessitate a kind of wait and see and let's work it out. Let's take the steps, let's do what we've planned and see what's going to happen. So these were, in a sense, a first-of-a-kind problems in Jerusalem with Paul there. Now remember, he came back after the second, but he didn't stay there. This one now, he's there. A few summers ago, my family and I traveled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. As we stood in the very building where our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were being drafted, I was struck when our tour guide said that what these brave men were doing had never been done before. I just was struck by that. What they were doing had never been done before. 
They had no idea whether it worked or not, the Constitution and all those things. So as they're hammering out the Declaration of Independence, they had to do it in all secrecy, lest being found out they'd be put to death for treason. I believe that it was Benjamin Franklin, maybe you know and can correct me on this, who said to these men who were risking their lives along with him, he said, quote, gentlemen, if we don't hang together, we shall certainly all hang separately, unquote. And so they're going about this thing. They have no idea where it's heading, but they went to it, and look what we are the recipients of. Thus, way back when, they're working through these issues, these problems, and I believe to give us a little bit of a template on how do we handle these tensions and these issues that come up because we are from different cultures. We are from different persuasions, theologically, personally, experientially. How do we work through them? I'll give you just briefly at the end four things. But let me notice this. The plan, having, Paul having been abroad, would in the mind of a Jew need to be ceremonially pure again. And so Paul would go through certain purification rites is what they're t- doing here. This would involve a seven-day ritual of purification before he would be allowed to then be present at the absolution ceremony for these four men who had taken a vow. The ritual included reporting to one of the priests and being sprinkled with water of atonement on the third and the seventh day. So that's what Paul's in the process of. Paul would report to the priest at the beginning of the seven days of purification inform him that he was going to be providing the offering for these four impoverished men who had taken probably a Nazarite vow. He would also tell the priest the date when the Nazarite vows would be completed, when these men would give their offering and present their shaved off hair. So to pay the charges for the Nazarite offering was considered an act of piety by all the Jews. In fact, Josephus tells us that King Herod Agrippa I, in wanting to win the Jews, actually underwrote the expenses of a number of these poor Nazarites. So that was a way just, so that's what they're having Paul do. And can you get, they're just trying to bring in this a solution to what they knew was going to happen because so many were in an uproar about Paul the Apostle. So verse 27. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that is Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now notice parenthesis, verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed, suppositions are always dangerous, they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. You see, here's the plan. It doesn't seem like it's working. Now, On the other hand, there was probably nothing that would have worked because of these bents against Paul the Apostle. Jews from Asia were determined to get Paul one way or another. They're accusing Paul of things that were totally false. Paul would never think about bringing a Gentile into the the Jewish court of the temple. He wouldn't do that. Outside the court of the Jews was a sign that read this. If any foreigner were to enter therein, he would die. And that sign had the backing of the Roman government. So all the authority was there to put to death anyone that would bring someone in or be in there as a, as a Gentile. So if Paul had, had done what he said, which I believe he would never do, he would have been a dead man. Notice verse 30. And all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. Immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, that's what they want, they want him dead. News came to the command. You can imagine Paul, he's a little guy being pummeled. 
News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them. And when they saw the commander of the so- and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded them to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. Sounds like Ephesus. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. And Paul stirred things up. For the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. So they grabbed Paul, dragged him past those signs out of the court of the Jews into the court of the Gentiles. Overlooking the temple compound was the Antonio Fortress, which housed a thousand Roman soldiers. During the feast times, these soldiers were on red alert. The multiplied Jewish presence would fuel a national zeal, and many a time things got out of hand in a hurry. So these soldiers on red alert, they come right down. They rescued Paul. Verse 37, we're almost there. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So the commander is mistakenly taking Paul as being this Egyptian self-proclaimed Messiah. Historically, happened. The Egyptian, this Egyptian man had gained a following of 4,000 rebels. So his followers were deceived into thinking that he, this Messiah, had promised to break down the walls of Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government. So 4,000 are ready to do it. As they gathered outside the city to do this, their rebellion was quickly put down. Most of those soldiers were killed by the Roman soldiers, and the Messiah man himself escaped. So this commander is thinking he's the same guy that's come back. But Paul said, verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs, motioned with his hands to the people, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, to be continued. (laughs) That's what he's going to say. We'll get this next week. Paul, right now, you got to appreciate this. This is what he has wanted from day one. I want to speak to my brethren. And he's got a captive audience of thousands there. He's up on the stairs. He's got the Roman government protecting him. And he's got a chance now to speak to them what he's wanted to speak his whole life. Can you, you get it? So, like, like lost in, anybody watch Lost in Space? You know, we're watching his, my little kid. And then you get to this point where it's like, and Dot, 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 to be continued. So thus we get this. So let me very briefly, I want to wrap this up with this idea. You see, the church is trying to work through some issues, trying to do it. And they had a plan. And I believe that as best as possible, that plan was working in the sense that Paul got an audience and God is always at work, though it might seem, what happened, God? He is not off the throne. Can you hear an amen? So as they're trying to work through these issues, Are they asking Paul to compromise his convictions? Is Paul compromising his beliefs? Are they contradicting, is he contradicting his own teaching? I don't believe so. This plan, what can we learn as far as planning for opposition? Number one, and number one, numero uno, is plan to love. Plan to love. 
Paul was driven by the love of Christ. He said, the love of Christ constrains me. Paul wanted them to know the love of God. Secondly, as Paul plan and the church plan to understand the opposition. Plan to understand. There'll always be problems. There'll always be difficulties. Make a plan. Work the plan. Remembering that there are no perfect plans. And we need to be open and understanding of the things as they come along. Be realistic. No one meeting is going to solve all the problems. I was talking to Kathy Sacconi yesterday. She's going to be going to Cyprus and going to be working along with FAI. Brand new place. So I was just sharing a little of these things with her. Hey, when you go, you have a plan. Because know this, when you get there, it's a whole new thing for you as it is for all the leadership, a young organization. And these are things we need to plan to love, we need to plan to understand, to be generous and patient in all the things that we're working through. Third, plan to overcome. Paul wrote to the Romans, repay no one evil for you, but have, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with, again, all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Verse 21, Romans 12, do not become overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with what? Good. Let me just rattle this off to you a moment. Paul could have argued with James and the elders as to the theological implications of asking him to do what he did. He didn't do that. Paul could have really stirred up things in the Jerusalem church. He didn't do that. Paul could have walked out of that meeting totally offended that James and the others would not stand up for him in his conviction in his ministry. He didn't do that. Paul could have chastised James and the others, taking them to task for their lack of appreciation for the offering. He didn't do that. Paul could have compared their attitude with the Gentile churches. He didn't do that. What Paul did was chose the path of peace. He was a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. The final thought, and we'll go to prayer after this, is plan to win. That's the final, because what are we winning? Souls for the kingdom. Plan to win. Our win is when God wins over souls for his kingdom. So would you bow your head, close your eyes, and pray with me, dear brothers and sisters in the Lord? Because we want to give an opportunity for God to win over someone else this morning. And if you're here and do not know the love of God through Jesus Christ, you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never come to him and say, I need forgiveness of my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not right with God. I have this wrestling that's been going on. And we understand the wrestling. We ourselves have gone through it. And there's a spiritual battle going on for your soul. The devil wants to rob you and kill you and destroy you. Jesus came to save you from him, the world, and all your sin. That's why he died on the cross. If you've never done that, then we're praying for you right now. Maybe we don't know who you are, but God does. And we're praying, Lord, the most important decision that you will ever make is to, to choose Jesus Christ because you're choosing between life and death, between heaven and hell. It's that critical. I'm not trying to be sensational at all. But the truth is that you don't know what's going to happen to you when you leave this building today. God does, you don't. None of us do. And so that's the urgency that we bring in the gospel. That if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, 
You know the righteousness that is not of your life. You're not right with God. And you want to get right today, then this decision is so important. Saying yes to Jesus today. So there's three things, simple things I'm going to ask you to do. Number one, raise up your hand and say, I want to get right with God today. Second, I'm going to ask you to stand up, and in so doing, you're obeying the gospel, you're confessing Jesus, and when you do that, all the excuses, all the tensions, all the fears, all those things will vanish because now you've obeyed the gospel, and God will give you a peace in your heart that you've done what you know you've needed to do for maybe a long, long time. So I'm going to ask you to stand up and then just walk up to one of the tables where there are people there who will pray with you and then pray for you in this desire you have today to get your life right with God. So we're just praying a little bit and just again, hand up if that's you. I want to get, I want to say yes to Jesus today. I don't want to miss another opportunity. I don't want to walk out of here not knowing what's going to happen when I die. And that's you. You just raise your hand up. I want to acknowledge that. Is that a hand I see back there? Okay. God bless you. Anyone else? We're praying. We're praying. God loves you. Created you to know him. The most infinite relationship you'll ever have is to know the true and living God who created you for just that reason. Anyone else? Where's your hand at? Okay, would you stand? My, my brother back there, would you stand where you are? I ask you to stand. Yeah. God bless you. The Lord be with you. If you now make your way to the table over here and someone will pray with you. And let's, we have the hand up, the stand up, and the walk up. And now we've got to give it up. Here's someone else that wants to get right with God today. Praise the Lord. And also, if you're here and you need prayer, we want to encourage that more than we ever have. We know that prayer is a deciding factor. So maybe there's someone on your heart. Maybe there's something going on in your life. And you just need someone to, to pray with you. I love the idea when we pray with someone else, that doubles the prayer. We pray with two other people, it triples it. And however many, so people are to pray for you, not only for your need today, but then to pray for that need throughout the week. If that's you, as we sing this last song, we're going to stand before the Lord during it. I'll come up and close this. But while we're singing or after, please make your way to the table and let's get some prayer going for you this morning. So let's close in this song and I'll close us with a scripture.